Good evening. Please open your Bibles to Gospel of John, chapter 4. Gospel of John, chapter 4, and verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Here the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking to the woman at the well. And she brought up the question of worship. And then the Lord Jesus Christ told her exactly what true worship is. Israel got carried away into rites and ceremonies. And they stopped giving God true worship. As a matter of fact, 750 years prior to this, in first chapter of Isaiah, God told them through Isaiah, I am tired of your sacrifices. I am tired of you coming and trampling in my courts. I despise your Sabbaths and your new moons. Their worship turned out to be carnal worship of Ceremonies. These people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. So we here, we have a glimpse into the heart of God. What exactly is he looking for? You know, there are different degrees of worship. For instance, in Revelation chapter 14, we see that angel will fly through mid-heaven crying out, Worship the Creator. The one who created the earth, the dry land, and the sea. So that's one kind of worship, to worship the creator. Here, our Lord Jesus Christ says, what kind of worshipers the Father desires? That's general worship of a creator in Revelation chapter 14. And yes, it is a responsibility of a creature to worship the creator. But here we see more intimate worship. Worship then only comes through a relationship with the living God. In uh, chapters 3 and 4, we find four musts that are required for this kind of worship. The first one is found in John chapter 3 and verse 7. Here the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Next one is found in John chapter 3 and verse 30. Two of them. He must increase, but I must decrease. And the last one is found in chapter 4 and verse 25, 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You notice four musts. They start with regeneration, and they end up with worshiping in spirit and in truth. You know, oftentimes, or more more than not, when we think of regeneration or new birth, we usually think of salvation from hell, we think of eternal life, and we think of going to heaven. And it's true. These are the benefits of the new birth. But you know, there's more to new birth than 
these benefits that I just mentioned. Look what our Lord Jesus Christ tells Nicodemus in verse 3 of chapter 3. Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Look at number, verse number 5. Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water, even the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Well, what exactly is the kingdom of God? How is one to see and enter into the kingdom of God? What does it mean to see and to enter? And what is the kingdom of God? Is kingdom of God heaven? You notice when the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth that he was preaching the kingdom of God or the gospel of the kingdom. Likewise, his disciples, they were preaching the gospel of the kingdom. If you notice in the book of Acts, the apostles were preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Apostle Paul was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And what happened? We kind of neglected that word kingdom. You know, there are different spheres of this kingdom of God. There is a spiritual sphere, and then there is a physical sphere. And usually when we today think of the kingdom or kingdom of God, we think of the millennial kingdom of Christ when he will come and establish his physical kingdom on this earth. Yet, dear saints, there's more to this kingdom. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God in, includes the realm which is subject to God. Remember, each kingdom requires what? A sovereign and its subjects. And God is king. And those who obey him are his subjects. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ said, kingdom of God is among you or in your midst. He was speaking to Pharisees. He was not speaking about their hearts because these were unregenerate people. These were ungodly people. So what was he speaking about? Well, he said the kingdom of God is in your midst. Who was in their midst? He was. The king was in their midst. And wherever the king is, there the kingdom is. Wherever his subjects are, there the kingdom is. And therefore, it is not confined to a place, but wherever his subjects are. Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 that we have been transferred or translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. So it is spiritual kingdom, spiritual in nature because God is spirit. It is more than going to heaven. It is really a spiritual condition. It is a new life. Kingdom of God is not meat and drink, Apostle Paul tells in Romans chapter 14. It is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we see that this is a spiritual realm into which we have been called, into which we are to call others, not simply just to be saved and go to heaven. No, no, it is to live the life in subjection, in submission to the King, to the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to see the kingdom? Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, see really means to know or to become acquainted with. How about to enter? Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water, even the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. It means to be admitted into and really 
to function in the spiritual realm of the kingdom of God. But why does it take new birth? Why can't we just function? Why can't we just know? Why can't we just understand spiritual things in the kingdom of God the way natural man is, unregenerate man? Well, remember when God first created Adam. You notice that he created him and he became a living soul. As a living soul, we see that he could hear, he could understand, he could enjoy, and he could commune with God. God came down. Adam was subjected to him, and Eve was subjected to him. And wherever God was, there the kingdom was, wherever his subjects were. But remember, God also told Adam that the day that you eat off the tree of the good, good knowledge of good and evil is the day that you will surely die. Well, when man ate of this tree, did they die? Well, no, not physically. Adam lived another 800 years. But spiritually, he died. Spiritually, man died. Because sin put to death that portion of his nature but which he previously communed with God. And he noticed that God stopped coming down to man. And man lost that fellowship with God as man was driven away outside from the garden, from the place of God. He could no longer see. He could no longer understand. He could no longer enjoy. He could no longer enter into the spiritual realm of God's kingdom. It was lost for him. So man lost his spiritual sense, his spiritual awareness of God. And as the years progressed, we see how he lost it more and more. And what does God call man from then on? He doesn't call him living soul anymore, does he? He calls him flesh. Because he's driven by flesh, by senses. An unregenerate person cannot come to know the things of God just like a dog. As faithful as he can be. As intelligent as he can be. But he cannot see into his master's life, can he? He follows us here and there. He watches us do this and that. But he can't reason out why we do things. Have you ever tried to reason out with a dog? I did for 52 years now. I had a dog all my life. And you try to tell him, you try to reason out why he shouldn't do this or that. And what does he do? Kind of looks at you in curiosity. Now, what are you trying to tell me? But he can't reason out. He can't understand what you're trying to tell him. You see, we can train them to do this or that to fetch this or to fetch that, or not to do this or that. He understands certain words that we use, certain phrases that we use, but that's about it. Why is that? Well, because he belongs to his own kingdom. Because he does not have the kind of life that he needs in order to operate in man's kingdom. Well, an unregenerate person is no different, they're, they're saints. He is out of his environment when it comes to spiritual things. He can see God's works. He can see his works all around us. But he doesn't comprehend. He doesn't reason them out. There are foolishness unto him, Apostle Paul tells us. They don't make sense to him. He can't appreciate them. He doesn't understand them. He's spiritually undiscerning, we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and especially verse 14, the natural man, that to him spiritual things are foolishness. He cannot understand why God does this and that. Have you ever tried to speak to an unsafe person about spiritual things? It goes right over, over their heads. They don't get it. They don't understand it. They can't get excited about it. They don't appreciate it. 
That's why the Word of God tells us not to cast our pearls before swine or give holy to the dogs. Those precious things, those holy things, they will not appreciate until he becomes a born-again man or a woman. And then the Spirit of God starts opening their understanding, and they have a hunger for those precious things, those holy things. So man is alienated from the life of God. He's dead spiritually, lifeless, and he needs to be quickened. He needs divine life in order to, to understand. And, and the new birth is the gateway to that life. The new nature provides the ability to understand, to comprehend, to be able to operate and function in the kingdom of God. And therefore, this kingdom can only be entered and seen and enjoyed by and through the Holy Spirit. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ said, you must be born again, but this is birth through the Spirit of God. You must be born, and unless one is born of the water, even the Spirit, he cannot enter into this spiritual realm to be able to understand, comprehend, enjoy appreciate spiritual things and obey God. Man in his natural state is incapable of obeying God and enjoying God and appreciating who God is and what he has done. And therefore, there's a change that is necessary. Well, it is change in nature. Apostle Peter tells us that we are partakers of divine nature. There's a change of feeling, change of priorities, change of principles, change of desires, change of affections, change of even a manner of life, change of interest. You notice everything begins to change after a person accepts Christ as their Savior, after the Spirit of God starts working in him, after he becomes a new creature. And this change is called the new birth or regeneration. Now, how does the new birth take effect? How does it occur? Well, the easiest way to explain it is example of a farmer. You know, a farmer will not sow his seed to an unprepared soil. What does he do first? He prepares the soil. He plows it, he discs it, he does whatever it needs to be until it's prepared. Otherwise, he knows that the seed will not take root. And then when the soil is prepared, he takes that seed, because remember, the life is in the seed, not in the soil. And he takes that seed, and he puts it in that soil. And the warmth and the, uh, and the, the moisture of the soil help germinate that seed. And life comes out, and before you know it, the little blade springs out, and there is the, the plant. Well, regeneration is no different. The Spirit of God is the farmer. He is the plowman that hovers over a human soul, over a human heart. And he works on the human heart various ways that he does so. And he prepares the heart to receive the word of God, the living word, the seed, the living seed. And when he prepares the heart, he shines the light of the gospel into that heart. He plants that living seed into the human heart, and faith grasps the hold of that living seed. And out comes life. This is why we are born of the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God who does the work. It is the Spirit of God who plants the seed. It is the Spirit of God who prepares the soil. He nurtures that new life unto fruition, unto maturity. But these saints... The new birth is only the beginning. It is not the final result. It is only the beginning, just like in a human being. When a child is born, this is not the end of his uh, career, is it? It's only the beginning. What happens? He's fed. First, he's fed milk, soft foods. And then he's fed a little bit more solid foods. And he gains strength. And he starts growing and gains understanding and experience and wisdom and so on and so forth. And he starts growing into maturity. And then he starts looking around. 
And as he starts looking around, he says, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. He starts picking what kind of career he wants to get into. Well, these saints, spiritual state is no different. No different. A person who's born again needs to grow into maturity and then strives unto perfection, unto completeness. At first, just a babe in Christ. And he requires soft food, milk of the word. And then a little bit more solid food. And he starts growing. and starts experiencing the word of God, experiencing the Lord. And he starts getting more knowledge and more experience as he grows. And then the final result is, what does he want? What is the goal in life? It is to be Christ-like. That's the goal. Because unregenerate person cannot have that goal. A baby in Christ will not have that goal. But as he starts maturing, as Apostle Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. And I did childish things. But now when I've grown up, I left those things alone. And I see different things before me. And this is why we need to mature and start eating this solid food in order to make sense to us. And then we desire to be Christ-like. But maturity comes first, and then comes perfection. After maturity, strive grasping for that perfection, which is not to be perfect, it is to be complete in Christ, to be complete, to be like Him, to be Christ-like, to display His image and His character. Now, this, this change can only come about through true and clearer knowledge of Him. You know what is Apostle Paul in uh, Philippians chapter 3, what he says? He said he left everything behind. And this man had a, a nice career. He had, he, he, he had places to go. And he accomplished much in his young life. But he says, you know, I'm putting all this away behind me. as trash, as dung, as nothing. Why? For the excellency of knowing him. But not only knowing him as a savior, but to be like him, that I may know him the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, to be conformed to his image, to be Christ-like. He realized that it was not enough just to be saved, but rather to drive. In that uh, uh, third chapter of Philippians, he tells us how he leaves everything behind and he's reaching forward, reaching for the things that he was apprehended for. It is to be Christ-like, for that perfection, for that completeness in Christ. And the only way to do this is knowledge and experience. Knowledge is not enough. We do need knowledge of the Word of God. We need knowledge of Christ. But then there must be experience. Experience with the living God. And this is what draws us closer to Him as we start walking with Him. Well, this is when the second must comes in. He must increase and I must decrease. These two go hand in hand. We need to have true uh, perception of Him in order for Him to increase in our hearts in our lives, in our minds. We need to see him really as he is. And in order to do this, he needs to get larger. He needs to be greater in our sight. And we need to be smaller. Now, why is it that we need to decrease? Well, first of all, uh, uh, in our fall, uh, self has taken place that God used to occupy. You see, man became self-centered. While man was dependent on God before sin, he was God-centered. Everything revolved around God, not man. But then man was tempted to be like God. And when he took the bait, he became self-centered. Everything for myself. Have you noticed that about ourselves? That the universe revolves around us? 
And it does. Makes no difference what we do or how we try not to do it. Even when we try to help someone, we do it to make ourselves feel, or we feel better. And it's not done in, a, in an evil way, but it's just the way the nature works. So we are self-centered because self has taken place that God ought to occupy. Well, this, this process needs to reverse. You know, humility is probably the, the toughest, the hardest, most difficult quality to obtain by a human being. Think about it. To be humble. I mean, most of us don't even know what it means to be humble. And this Christ-centeredness can only come, this humility can only come through fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that verse above me, come unto me all you who labor uh, are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That is a call of the Lord Jesus Christ to the sinner to come and lay the load of his sin at his feet and he will take it off, he will forgive him his sins. Cast him behind his back, about brother mentioned today about the scapegoat, put him on a scapegoat and the scapegoat was taken away into the wilderness, land of forgetfulness as a matter of fact because I remember them no more. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ will do. But it's not the end. Next verse is, now take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and I am humble, or lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. So now he says, come and learn from me. You want to learn humility? You want to learn humbleness, meekness? Learn from me, because I am the only one I can show you. Because who else is there that is as humble, as meek as the Lord Jesus Christ? He's the epitome of humility. He's the model of humility. He's embodiment of humility. Here's the one who made himself of no reputation. Another translation says he emptied himself. Well, what did he empty himself of? His deity? No, he was always God, always will be God. How about his glory? Some say he left his glory. Left his glory. Well, no, he left the glory of heaven, but he brought his own personal glory with him. Because what does John say in John chapter 1? He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So his personal glory was here, but it was veiled by flesh. And they had a glimpse of it every now and then, especially in the model of transfiguration. So what did he empty himself of? But really, the word really means he brought himself to nothing. This is something that you and I cannot understand. Absolutely cannot understand. Why? Because we were never created. We were never God. Never will be. But God himself, creator himself, the immortal one who possesses, the only one who possesses immortality, he became a man. He humbled himself to becoming a man. You see, the worst you and I can humble ourselves is to become a cockroach or a, or a maggot, and we will be disgustingly disgusted about that. But that's not even close, because both that maggot and the cockroach and us are creatures. Here we have a creator, God, who became like one of us. Remember at the Last Supper, as he got up from the table, from the supper, and he girded himself, and he washed the disciples' feet. This was reserved for the lowest of the house slaves to do. Yet the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself and washed the feet. He didn't come to be served, but to serve himself. And then, as our brother mentioned this morning, the worst was yet to come. When he humbled himself, even unto death, death of the cross, the cursed cross. Imagine, or well, we can't imagine, 
we can only talk about it. Here he is, the author of life, the giver of life, life eternal himself, surrendered himself and went willingly into the empire of death. What a humbleness, what humility this was. That life himself, the prince of life, would allow himself to be taken by death. He willingly dismissed his spirit, but he did go into death. Thou shalt not leave my soul in Sheol, neither will thy allow thy holy one to see corruption. So he did die. He, he really literally died. This was humility. And this is why he is the only one he can teach us. Now, does he want us to empty ourselves to this point? Well, we can't, and he doesn't want to. All he wants us to do is for us, really, not to assume to ourselves more than really we ought to. Don't think of yourself more than you are. Not to overestimate ourselves, not to grant ourselves undue self-elevation, which, again, it's pretty hard for us to do. Not to judge ourselves on our accomplishments or our possessions. This is very hard to do isn't it? Whether it's our good looks, whether it's our money, whether it's our other possessions, whether it's our schooling, whether it's business, whether it's our property, makes no difference. But as soon as we attain to something, we can look at people below us. And again, it's not even done in a mean way, but we just look at, I have this, and they have this. I attain to this, they attain to this. So what he's asking us to do is simply not to think of ourselves more than we ought to. And what is that? That we are what we are simply by the grace of God. You are a creature. You're no different than anybody else. You are in your sin. And you were saved by grace. It is not something that you did. It's not because you had a degree, because you had a good business, because you were good looks, or anything like that. It is simply by his grace. So when we are together, we're brothers and sisters. We are equal. He says, you don't call yourself leaders. Don't call yourself fathers. Don't call yourself rabbis. Don't call yourself teachers. You are all brethren. So don't exalt yourself above what you need to. And really, that's humility. And yet, how, how hard is it for us to attain even to that? He's not even asking us to come lower than we are to a lower creature. He's not. He himself came down. But he's just asking us to be what he made us by his grace. That's what he's asking us. You know, I cannot be occupied with two great objects at the same time. Him and me. These are the two great objects that I have before me. Because as I mentioned, because the world and the universe revolves around me, and I, of course, I, I, I understand and I, I accept that he is great. But I have this, there's a conflict here. And this is why John says, he must increase and I must decrease. To decrease is to be less occupied with ourselves. Because if I'm truly occupied with the one who was meek and lowly in heart, if I'm constantly beholding his glory in the word of God, what will be the outcome? Well, the outcome will be that the more I'm going to be changed into the same image. If I'm constantly, if this is my life's desire, to be like him, and I walk with him, and I study his life, and I look at him, and I fellowship with him over and over, day by day, and I commit myself to him, and I am obedient to him, what will be the outcome? I'll be changed to the same image. 
2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. Because occupation with the Lord Jesus Christ, dear saints, will begin this transformation in me, will begin this change in me, in my heart, and in my character. And then by the power of His Holy Spirit, this change starts to take place. And others will be able to see it to the point that now I'll be able to say that I live, but nevertheless, it is no longer I who lives. It is really Christ who is living through me, and you'll be able to tell, you'll be able to see the evidence of this life through you. It is Christ living through us. Well, one of the fruits of this humility and Christ-centeredness is true worship. You know, man worships someone greater than himself. That's a fact. It's always been this way for 6,000 years. And the greater the object of his worship, the greater the worship. You know that heathen uh, pagans had various gods. Uh, they had greater gods and lesser gods. Some were worshipped more, some worshipped less. Some were feared more, some were feared less. Some were sacrificed to more, some were sacrificed less. So it depends on the degree of God, of his greatness, that's how much he was feared and worshipped. Well, when it comes to us, the greater is, is the Lord Jesus Christ to us, dear saints, then the greater will be our worship, but not out of fear like heathen used to fear that God was going to just strike him down. No, our worship is different. Our worship is through experience with him because he loves us. You know, it says, those who worship the Father. This is relationship now, relationship that we have with him, that we know him as our Father. It is love between us and him. He loves us. He cares for us. He takes care of us. He trains us. He disciplines us. He corrects us. He instructs us, and so on and so forth, in order for us to be obedient and submitted and to be Christ-like. So now we see his person, not only as this God sitting in heaven that can't wait to throw a lightning bolt at us. No, no, no. We understand now because we have his spirit. We have the new nature to be able to understand who he is and why he has done these things and what is he trying to accomplish in my life and in this earth. So now it becomes personal with me, and I'm looking at a person, not just this being. He is a person. He is my God. He is my Father. He is my Savior. He is my Master. He is my Lord. He is my friend. And this is why now I have a different outlook on him. So worship is the result of knowledge and experience. Not knowledge alone, but knowledge and experience with the divine being. It is the appreciation, really, and reverence of the character and workings of God. Let me give you an example of children of Israel. When children of Israel were in Egypt, you notice they did not worship one true God. They did not sacrifice to him. Not one altar was built in Egypt, if you remember. Not one. As a matter of fact, let's go even further. Did you know that they didn't even know God? In third chapter of the book of Exodus, when God is sending Moses to Egypt to, to uh, uh, bring his people out, out of the slavery. Moses says, now, when they ask me, whom shall I say that sent me? When they ask me, what is his name? Over the years, they have totally forgotten about God. When the patriarchs died, when Joseph died, when his brothers died, after their father died, there was no more remembrance of God in the land of Egypt. They worshipped other gods, but not one true God. But now, God was dealing with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And they saw, they got some knowledge of one true God. But they still didn't worship him. Until when? 
In chapter 14, they are out of Egypt, and they are facing the Red Sea. But Pharaoh and his army is right behind them. So Red Sea in front of them, slavery behind them. They cry out to Moses, not to God. They cry out to Moses. Moses cries out to God, and God says, stop crying out to me. Tell the people to assemble, and you smite the waters. The waters opened up. Nation of Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. Pharaoh attempted to do the same thing. The waters returned in the morning, and they drowned army of Egyptians. What happened in chapter 15? We see worship. Israel worships God. Why? There is experience with the living God now. Not, not only do they know him, but they have experienced his salvation. It becomes personal with them. So they pick up their instruments and they sing and they worship the living God because now they've experienced the living God. It's the same with us. Not just knowledge. It must be experience with the living God because now it's something close, something personal between us and him. Well, true worship must be, as our Lord Jesus Christ says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Well, in spirit means under the influence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, spirit of God is the one who brings the greatness and knowledge of God to our hearts. He then engages the whole heart and stirs our affections, our adoration towards God, our desire, our affections towards God. You know, unless there's real passion for God, unless there's real passion, there is no worship in spirit. There are two different things, spirit and knowledge, and we'll talk about those. Passion is a powerful feeling of love, adoration, reverence, devotion, and appreciation for his person. Now, spiritually is opposite of externally, such as rites and ceremonies, which we see many do when they dress up and do all kinds of little things here and there, and they call it worship. Uh, worship is not by the eye. God is spirit. He doesn't care about those things. It is not by the ear, but it's from the heart, from the new nature. This is why he has given us a new nature, that we can worship in spirit and in truth. Now, we have to be careful of emotionalism. You know, there are those who advocate that worship is to be through musical instruments. And every time they say this, they, they mention David. Now look at David. David used musical instrument to worship, and he also says, worship the Lord, worship Jehovah with musical instruments. And I agree with that. That is true. It's still true today. The only problem is, that remember, David expressed his worship through musical instruments. He did not worship due to musical instruments. Two different things. You know what? We worship once the Spirit of God stirs our heart. We can express that worship in various ways. It can be through audible, as we do in the morning, Sunday morning, when we, at the breaking of bread, when we worship the Lord. It can be done through a song. It can be done on a musical instrument, if you know how to play one. So you can express your worship through musical instrument. But if you can't play musical instrument, how are you going to do so? You're going to what? What are you going to do? You have a band playing here, right? And you're going to listen, and it's going to stir your heart to worship. So you're going to be worshiping due to musical instruments. Totally different. That's emotionalism. Let me tell you my experience. I was invited a few times to speak at a uh, charismatic meetings. So I went, and before I spoke, they had a worship meeting. They had a uh, worship leader, and they had a music. So what they did was first they dimmed the lights, 
And they start off the music nice and soft and slow. And then the tempo picked up, and the lights came on. And it got really, really loud, and people started yelling and screaming and jumping and doing all kinds of things. And then after about half an hour or so, I noticed who was in charge. He kind of started slowing down the music, and the worship stopped. You noticed? The, the worship was regulated by a man, by their emotion. I'm not saying there were not some there who truly worshiped, but this is what it was. It was that the music got them going. They heard something. They saw something. So the, their worship did not come from the spirit, from within. Their worship came from outside because what they heard and saw. Again, I'm not saying you can't worship with music if you know how to play musical instruments or if you know how to sing. If you sing, that's fine. But not to worship due to musical when it comes from outside. It doesn't come from here anymore. It comes from out there. You know, music is very strange. Let me tell you how. It can put a person into various moods. You know, a hundred years ago when they used to line up hundreds of thousands of men on a battlefield, why do you think those men marched in face of a musket and a bayonet? You ever heard those bagpipes? I would march too. If you heard one of those, especially, well, in World War I, when they marched those men one against the other and they had music and band playing, it just gets you going. You don't, you're not, you don't fear that band. You don't fear death. You want to die, those patriotic songs. You really go. It puts you in a mood of love. puts you in a mood of bad mood, good mood. You name it. So music, we need to be careful of this kind of emotion, that it is not, we're not driven by it, that it comes from within. And yes, we can express our worship through music and song. And audibly, however you want to. However the Lord, Spirit of God will lead you. But we need to be careful that our worship does not come from outside, but it comes from within, being stirred by the Spirit of God. Well, the next one is, uh, at the same time, worship must be in truth. That is, we need to be properly informed. Now, in truth is when every purpose and every passion of our heart is guided by the Word of God, the truth. You know, we can sing and we can dance and we can, we can play musical instruments and we can put words together, but if they're not of the truth, it's not true worship. Okay? True worship is according to the truth. In other words, what am I saying in my worship? Am I saying something that's true or not about God? If I'm saying things that I don't know anything about God and I'm just saying words, it's not true worship. God is not accepting that kind of worship. It has to come from the word. It has to come from the truth. Where do we find the truth? In the Word of God. It comes through experience and knowledge of the Word of God. So unless we have knowledge of God, we worship. There is no worship in truth. Spirit without truth leads to shallow, overly emotional experience. That's all it is. If it's just from the Spirit, it's stirred up within us, but there's no truth to it. It's just over-emotional experience like emotional high, nothing more. Now, worship in knowledge, in truth, but without spirit, turns to be really a passionless, dry worship. That happens sometimes in our morning meeting. It doesn't come from within. We, we're saying the right things. We know what he, who he is and what he has done for us, and we recite those things. So it's worship. We're worshiping him, and it's worship in truth. But it has not been stirred by the Spirit of God. It doesn't come from within. We say it just to say it. 
because nobody else gets up or something, what have you. We want to be ones getting up or what have you. So it's dry. It is passionless. So it must include both of these. Worship of God, dear saints, is the highest employment a creature has. The highest. God has made it possible for us to worship him in spirit and in truth by giving us a new nature and placing his spirit within us. As those with the new nature, we can understand, we can see, we can comprehend, we can experience the living God. And the Spirit of God then leads us into deeper revelation, deeper understanding of Him. And He leads us into worship because this is the ultimate goal, is worship. This is what God desires. Even heathen gods, that's what they desire, was worship. This is what God desires from us, this worship. What usually stands in the way is me. And this is me needs to decrease. He needs to increase. I need to, I need to see him as he truly is, and I need to see myself as I truly am, which is down low. And we can't do this. This is impossible for us to accomplish unless we take the burden, take the yoke of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is discipleship, unless we are submitted to his yoke, because only he can teach us how to be humble and how to worship, because he through his spirit, will lead us into this worship that the Father so desires. With maturity comes deeper understanding, deeper dependence on him, deeper obedience, deeper affection for him. First, the new birth, and then comes maturity. And maturity in spiritual way is not to increase, but to decrease, to know him more, to more, know him more intimately. And then the outcome will be what? True spiritual worship. Worship in spirit and in truth. May the Lord bless his word. Our loving God and our heavenly Father, we are thankful and grateful again for this time and for thy blessed word. Heavenly Father, we, we bow down before thee, the living God, the one who sent his son to die for us, to bring us unto thyself, who has given us a new nature, who has given us new life, who has given us his own spirit. Thank thee, Father, for thy Holy Spirit to lead us into these truths, that we may be able to understand, comprehend, and enjoy, and to function in thy kingdom, to be able to be useful to thee, to know thee, Father, as our truly art, not as a strange God, but as our intimate Father who loves us and cares for us. Help us, Father, to, to desire this, to be Christ-like, to desire to know thee, O Lord. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Sweeter than honey, sweeter than a honeycomb. Help us, Father, we do pray, because we truly want to worship the living God in spirit and in truth. Be with us, Father, and, and dismiss us in thy peace. We do pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.